Well, good morning. It's good and very good to be back in Gallon Baptist. And I pray that uh, this morning we have worshipped God in spirit and in truth, and that He will, by His Spirit, speak to us through His Word. Turn to Hebrews in your Bible. We will be examining the first paragraph, which is the first four verses. There is no clear answer to the question, who wrote the book of Hebrews? The human author. While it is helpful to know what man penned the words in a given book, because this helps us understand him, because we can read what he wrote in other places, and his personality is used by the Spirit to put those words down, we must remember that every word in the original writings, which historians and theologians call the autographs, were inspired by the Holy Spirit as he carried along the humans who put their pen and personality onto the parchment. Now, we don't know who who the human author was of Hebrews, but we know who the author of this epistle is. And lots of people think the Apostle Paul wrote it, and just as many are convinced that somebody else that they don't know wrote it. Now, the ancient historian Eusebius said that the Roman Catholic Church did not accept the epistle as part of the scriptures for a while. And they claimed to be the ones who gave the Bible to us. Well, these two facts, we don't know who the author is, and some people who profess to be Christians didn't even accept it at first, impress upon us the need that we each have to know the Bible, including how we got it, and how do we know that what's in it is supposed to be in it. And we'll cover that at another time, Lord willing. But one thing to keep in mind is that God is truly sovereign, and his providential hand was at work in revealing to the early post-apostolic church what he intended to be in his book. And so we know that the letter to the Hebrews was meant to be for us as part of Holy Scriptures. Man is no more responsible for deciding what books are in the Bible than he is for deciding what the content of any one book is. It's God's word. He's the primary author. We receive it from him. Now, this entire epistle may have been written as a sermon to be delivered. You can read it in about an hour, and sometimes that's what a good sermon fills up, and we won't take that long this morning. But uh, you can read it in about an hour, and it's full of contrasts. You'll see contrasts between old and new, good and better, long ago versus now. And in our four verses, we're going to see four of these comparisons. You'll see this pattern throughout Scripture as we read about the two categories of people on this planet, those who are spiritually dead and those who have been born again by the Spirit of God. And the overarching theme of the whole Bible is that Jesus is superior to all the Mosaic rituals. He is God, gloriously and fully God, yet fully man. And this is the mystery known as the hypostatic union, the teaching that both divine attributes, fully God and fully man, are in the person of Jesus Christ. And as the church grew in the early centuries, there were heretics that came into the church and were whispering that Jesus is not God whispering that Jesus is not man. And early creeds of the church were formulated with very specific language to rebut heresies. And in 451, the Chalcedonian uh, creed was written to to combat three different heresies which denied the deity of Christ 
the, 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 the idea that Jesus was fully man and fully God, that they denied that in one or two different ways. Here's, here's what the, the Christians wrote. It's a pretty short creed. I want to read it to you. Listen to the specific words that narrow down on this topic, Jesus fully God and fully man. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father, according to the Godhead, consubstantial with us, according to the manhood, in all things like us, without sin, begotten of all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be distinction of nature's being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one substance, not parted out or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him. And the Lord Jesus Christ has taught us the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. These guys were passionate that Jesus Christ is fully man, fully God. We tend to take for granted certain essential elements of the Christian faith, each of which was fought, fought over during the early, uh, the New Testament times and the first few hundred years after that. And even today there are professing Christians who deny fundamental truths from the nature of Christ to the sufficiency of, of his sacrifice to the sovereignty of God to the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Old heresies keep coming back with new names. The focus of Scripture is to reveal God to man and to reveal man to man because we tend to think too highly of ourselves, and we need to see us in relation to God and his perfect, perfect holiness and we need to see that even if we're pretty good and everybody thinks highly of us, sin abides in us and we cannot approach God on our own. That brings us to our text. The way we get brought to God is through the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. This is the word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This epistle starts out without a personal greeting that you find in letters from Paul and Peter and James. It just starts off with a theological statements that are meant to grab your attention. Same way John opens up his gospel and the apocalypse that we call Revelation. Listen to the first four verses of the gospel of John and see how it lines up with our text in Hebrews. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, not anything was made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. 
I'm not suggesting John wrote Hebrews. I want you to see the consistency in the Scriptures. And while there are differences between these two passages, they both declare Jesus Christ to be God, with God, creator of all things, and the source of life. When God spoke through the prophets and through Jesus, His Word was meant to be clear to His people. You go back in the Old Testament and you consider how God spoke to Noah, how He spoke to Moses, how He came to Abimelech in a dream when Abraham gave his wife up one time, and how He came to the Apostle Paul. In each one of these examples, God came with clarity and it was unmistaken who was doing the talking and what the message was. Hidden from those who are lost, the Scriptures from God, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, give Christians certain hope in the message He has meant for us. That the person and work of Jesus Christ is sufficient to reconcile sinners to Holy God. The entire Scripture is best seen from what theologians call a redemptive historical perspective, which is where you see through the types and shadows of the Old Testament, what we'll see later in the book of Hebrews were meant to point to Christ. The very tabernacle that God gave Moses to build was patterned after the heavenly things that are all about the supreme ministry that our high priest Jesus Christ performs. And it gives his, you know, an increasingly clear understanding of the gospel that we first see a glimpse of back in the fall in Genesis 3.15 where the promise is made that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. And as far back as Abraham, we have biblical testimony that Christ was seen by God's chosen people. Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews, who were more interested in their position with men were unable to understand what the Lord was saying about their religious forefather. In the book of Hebrews, we see that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was not looking for dirt. These are just two examples that demonstrate the wonder and the glory and the mystery of holy God redeeming sinful men and giving them a living hope in Christ Jesus. And this ties to the passage before us in several different ways. And I want to bring out several things to you. first one is, God spoke to us by the prophets, and we're going to contrast the prophets to the Son. In Abraham's time and beyond, God spoke directly to his people through men chosen by him to be ambassadors for that time and for that people. The scripture says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. As time unfolded and the nation of Israel continued to rebel and not listen to these people, the religious leaders hated the prophets. The people loved them. The religious leaders kept the people under a yoke that no man could bear. And they wanted to hear what the prophets had to say because they gave hope. And the, the parable of the tenants in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawgivers. And he's telling them about a rich man who had a farm and he went away for a season and he put people in charge of it and he sent servants down to check on the farm and the people that he put in charge of the farm, they beat the servants and they finally send his son and they kill his son. And he asked the, the religious leaders there, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? 
And the religious leaders said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and, and lease out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? He's referring here to Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in your eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone, this chief cornerstone, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, Matthew says they perceived that he was talking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him because they wanted to kill him, the scripture says they feared the crowds because the crowds held him to be a prophet. It had been 400 years since the last prophet had spoken. Not content with what God had revealed to them in what we call the Old Testament, the closed canon of Jewish scriptures. By that time Jesus came, there was no doubt this was the word of God. All sorts of religious rules and power structures had been developed by the Jewish leaders as they attempted to control people. They wanted a religious system where they could control people and have their power base. A new prophet had come, John the Baptist. He was hated by the leaders. He was embraced by the common folks. And these prophets were respected even though the leadership hated them and wanted to kill them all because the, they feared the people, just like Pontius Pilate feared the people. And we see this in the parable, this fear of man that the Pharisees had. And this is a point of contrast between the people of the world who do not know God and the people of God. The people of the world fear other people. And the people of God fear God in the right way. And we do not fear man because we answer to another king. These Pharisees had it upside down. And they did not understand who God was. They understood who the God that they made in their own minds was. And they did not know who Jesus was as he stood there talking to them. And Hebrews says, He spoke to us through the prophets. He has now spoken to us through His Son. And that's what our author of Hebrews is addressing. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Every Jew had been looking for the son of David who would sit on David's throne forever. God had promised that. And they all expected some Jew on a big horse coming in go to throw the Romans out. Jesus didn't fit their expectations, even though he is a son of David. Many people think that his favorite self-description, son of man, was used to describe him as fully human. That's why he used it so much. And no doubt that's part of it, because it does describe him as human. But Jesus called himself the Son of Man because that's what Daniel wrote about him. Listen to what Daniel says. He describes the Son of Man as one who came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion will be an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
This is a prophetic reference to Jesus, describing him as we see him revealed in the New Testament. Consider that familiar passage in Philippians 2. Jesus humbled himself. He presented himself to God. He presented himself to sinful man to be murdered. He presented himself to be God as a perfect sacrifice. And then he was highly exalted and given a name above all names. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is who Daniel was writing about when he said, this is who the Son of Man is. And that's why Jesus took that label and put it on himself. But he is more than the Son of David, the Son of a Man. He is God's Son. And that brings us back to where we started, the importance of understanding who he is as this unique being who is fully God and fully man. And as that creed says, not that one nature is subordinate to the other or hampered by the other or constraining the other. It's a, it's a mysterious union that we can't fully comprehend like the Trinity is. But that is who Jesus is. And that's the main point of this epistle. To communicate who Jesus is so that there's no confusion. Because if you don't have the biblical Jesus, you don't have biblical salvation. It's critical that we have a biblical view of Jesus because our standing before God hinges on our relationship with Him. And what we have in our hands called the New Testament is a record of His life and His death and His resurrection and the love that He has for those called by His names and the refuge that He is for all who have been called and believe in Him. And one part of this phrase that we need to pay attention to that's kind of curious, what does it mean in these last days? The text says, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. In Acts 2.17, Hebrews 9.26, and 1 Peter 1.20, they use this basic phrase. And in all three places, it's used to describe a contrast between the age in which Christ walked the earth and gave birth to the church until He comes again, what we call the church age or the age of grace, contrasting it with the age of the nation of Israel. It's the age of types and shadows contrasted with the age of true life and the true Son. Uh, Hebrews 9.26 tells us that Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So these days, these last days, the end of the age, were present in the first century. This is the basis for Christians over the centuries thinking that they were living in the last days and for considering the span of time from Jesus' first advent to, the, as the, to His return as the church age. Both of these are good for us to have in mind because we're commanded to always be ready for His return because man doesn't know when He's coming back. And we're commanded to be walking mindful that we are citizens of another kingdom. We're aliens and sojourners here on planet Earth. And we see through the glass dimly. We don't see everything as it will be. When Christ returns and the heaven and the earth are reborn after the judgment, and the kingdom of God will be clearly seen by all of God's redeemed. We live in what's called by a lot of theologians the already but not yet age. We are living in Christ, in the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is among us, but it is not as it will be when Christ comes again. When Christ comes and makes all things new, there is no more temptation. There is no more disease. There is no more sickness or death. So we move on to verse 2. The end of verse 2, we want to look at the identity of the Son. We see that He's better than the prophets, and we're going to see specific uh, characteristics of Him. 
verse 2 ends with this, the Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. There's just a whole lot that the author of Hebrews put in these first four verses. The, the phrase, the heir of all things, this would remind the Hebrews of what their Bible says in Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, is what Psalm 2 says. This tells those who first heard this message that this son, who is the end of the prophets, is the son of God, but not in the same way that mortals are the son of God. Mortals are the sons of God by being redeemed by Christ and born again by faith. Jesus is the son of God because of who he was in the beginning. He didn't have to get born again. The Son of God is God, and this is what the author is telling us that he's the, by telling us he's the heir of all things. His role in creation, through him all things were created. He is equal with God, because in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And Jesus Christ was him through whom all things were created. Jehovah's Witnesses and other people who think that Jesus is a created being are refuted by this passage and by Hebrews 3.3 3 and John 1.3. The Son of God, who is God, is heir to the kingdom. The one who would sit on David's throne forever can't be one of you and me because we die. Our flesh, because of sin, physical death came just like spiritual death did. It has to be somebody who is immortal, who is eternal, who, whom death cannot hold. That can only be Jesus. And Buku scriptures, that's a theological term, Buku scriptures testify that Jesus is the promised son that would sit on the throne of David. He earned his father's approval and was, giving, was given the ends of the earth as his possession as a reward for his faithfulness. Jesus kept the law. He kept everything and he stood before the Father approved by him because he had no sin, not in word, thought, or deed, not a sin of commission, or as Adrian Rogers said that he feared more than anything shortly before he died was the sins of omission. He said no matter how many people talked good of him, he knew for him who knows to do good and does not do it to him that is sin, all of us have uncounted sins of the good things we do not do. Jesus had none. Hear me. None. And when Jesus was ready to ascend to the Father, He gave what we call the Great Commission. He declared this inheritance as His, and He prefaced that commission to us by saying that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to Him. In saying this, Jesus declares Himself to be God. Who but God has all authority? This description of the Son ends with the first part of verse 3, where we read that He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Man has made in the image of God. We are called the crowning glory of creation. As far as created matter goes, we're right good, right? Powerful. We're top of the food chain. All the animals were given to us to eat, to enjoy. We're given wood so we can make buildings to live in. Clothes, 
the Son of God is infinitely superior. He doesn't possess the likeness of God. He is the exact imprint of the radiance of glory of God and the imprint of God's nature. He's not part of creation. See, Moses couldn't look upon the Father. God said, turn around and I'll show you my back. And yet when Moses came down off Mount Sinai, his face shone so brightly that the people feared and could not look upon him, and so they requested him to put a veil over his face. And yet after a time, that faded. Because Moses possessed some of the glory of God, but it was not part of his nature. And so it faded, because that which is holy can't live in that which is sinful. Jesus doesn't take possession of the radiance of the glory of God. He is that. And it does not fade. And it does not diminish. And it cannot be tarnished. And it cannot be taken from Him. So Moses, a type, a shadow. Jesus, the anti-type, the end of that thing. And it says that He's the exact imprint of His nature. And the only thing I could think of that would communicate this characteristic is currency. You think about the way the government goes through great pains to specify the paper and the engraving that are on the plates that press out currency in this country. They do this to make sure that the printed bills are the exact imprint of the image on the plates, printed on paper that's supposed to be unique so that it's harder to counterfeit. Right? That's as close as I can come to describing in earthly terms what the exact imprint means. Here's how we are as people made in God's image. You take, a, you take a $10 bill and you put it on a 20-year-old Xerox machine and you make a copy of it. That's us. It's not exact. It's not engraved. It's simply a photographic image that's imperfect and smeared and fuzzy in certain areas, easily seen as not the same thing. He is higher than we are. He is holier than we are. He is more pure than we are. He is fully God. And that's what the author is trying to impress upon us. And it must be something that we tend to forget because he's taking great pains to impress it upon us with several different pictures. And this one who created the world, this one who is the exact imprint of God, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The table of elements that describe the characteristics of different properties and metals and so forth is reliable and dependable and useful by scientists because Jesus holds the universe together. If it wasn't for Jesus' active involvement and by the word of his power holding all things together, steel might turn into water, gravity might turn off and on. You couldn't depend on the wood in that pew to hold you up off the floor. But these things are constant because of Jesus' faithfulness to us. This is like the image that we see in Revelation 19, which says Jesus has a sharp sword coming from his mouth that will strike the nations. It's not a piece of metal. It's his word. He speaks a word of judgment that will strike the nations. His words have power that Kenneth Copeland claims to have but does not. Right? God did not speak words that were full of faith, which is what those word of faith heretics say. God is God. And he speaks, and it is. We are not God. And this is who the Son is. He is God.
And yet He came as a man to be with us. So what did He do for us? That's the next thing. That's the last thing we're going to see in the text. No, it's the second to the last thing. What did He do for us? The work of the Son. Verse 4 says, After making purifications for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. This one sentence in itself is a rich tapestry proclaiming the glorious work of the Lamb of God. After making purification for sins. This phrase phrase connotes the completion of the work. After making purification for sins, the work is complete. See, he made the complete payment for sins on the cross, but not merely by being crucified. Thousands of men were crucified, and they couldn't pay for anybody else's sin. Payment is complete. Because when Jesus hung on the cross, he's contra- the author's going to contrast his sacrifice with the, with the Jewish Levitical sacrifices that God gave them to do to point them to this lamb that would come. The Jewish system of atonement could never take away sin. It could cover it up for a season. It could never purify for sins. The sacrifice had to be repeated endlessly. They could never perfect the conscience of the worshipers, as Hebrews says in chapter 3 or 4. But these practices all anticipated the Lamb of God who would take away sins. This Jesus, He has forgiven all the sins of all those who will come to faith in Him. The purification is complete. He sat down at the right hand of God because there was no further work required of him. The Greeks put this word uh, in in Christ's mouth, teletai, something like that, which means paid in full. When you look at an invoice that you've paid on some stuff that you've bought and it's stamped paid in full, you don't have to pay them anything more. All the sins on him did ride. They were nailed to the cross, Philippians says. Nailed to the cross with him. Sitting down at the right hand of God. It's a place of honor and authority. It's a place that you symbolically don't have to get up from. You have servants come at your beck and call. This position conveys the authority that he has which is what I want to focus on for a minute. The, the Holy Trinity is something that we need to understand in more depth than just the three persons. Consider this parallel of the three persons in the Trinity and what they've done. When God the Father completed His creation work, He rested from that work. He continued to guide redemptive history, and the Scriptures show that He was actively involved in shaping history and the lives of men. Jesus Christ, after he had finished his work of atonement, sat down at God's right hand, resting from his work of redemption. Yet he works as our high priest and advocate, as our protector and shepherd. And so it is with the third person in the Holy Trinity. The Holy Spirit worked during and after Pentecost to bring about the birth of the church with many signs and wonders. And though the bulk of these miracles have ceased, because the foundation of the church was established and doesn't need to be built again and again and again. The Spirit of God continues His work of giving us illumination as we read the Scriptures. 
He convicts the world of sin. He convicts of righteousness. And He convicts us of the righteousness of Jesus, not of ourselves. And in each of these, there were creation work that was primarily the the function of one of the Godhead. And there was a period of rest from that work, although not rest from all things, that they each went through. And now, at the same time, all three members of the Trinity were involved in creation. Because we read that Jesus was whom created all things, and we read that the Spirit of God hovered over the earth when he was forming the, the, the earth, you know, the ground out of the shapeless void. And so they each have special identity as to what their primary function is, but they are all working together to bring about those things. The Father chose those to be redeemed, Jesus Christ atoned for them, and the Spirit seals them until the day of judgment. Over and over again, the unity is in the Trinity is in perfect unity, working together. They each had a one-time work of creation, followed by resting from that work, while continuing on in unity amongst themselves, with other work required for our good and their glory. This is the work of the Son, completely at one with the Father and the Spirit. The last thing we're going to look at is the Son compared to the angels. Verse 4 ends up that he, Jesus, having become as much superior to the angels, how did he become superior to the angels? We'll look at that. He became as superior to the angels as he has inherited a name that is more excellent than theirs. The name of Jesus is more excellent than the name of all the angels. We don't know the name but of two angels in Scripture. Jesus has a name that is more excellent than them. Jesus became superior to the angels. Jesus is not merely being contrasted to the angels here, though it is right to do so, because he is not one of them. When Christians die, we don't become angels either, right? Humans and angels are different categories of created beings. We as mortals were created a little lower than the angels. We see that in Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5. Jesus, it says in Hebrews 4, became superior to the angels. How is this possible? He was made as a man a little bit lower than the angels. Hebrews 2.7 tells us this, applying Psalm 8 to Jesus. He came as a man. Man is a little bit lower than the angels. He became much superior to the angels with a name that is more excellent than theirs because he completed the work that was given him before the world was formed. To live without sin to earn the position of sacrificing himself for the sin of others, to bring many sons to glory, as the Scriptures say. Ephesians 2.21 tells us that his name is far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And in Philippians uh, 2.9-11, Paul tells us, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, So that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. See, at the name of Jesus, angels and saints that have gone before us that are in heaven are going to bow down and worship Him because He is worthy of worship. At the name of Jesus, everybody that's still here on planet earth is going to bow down and worship Him. And those who are under the earth, those who are doomed and damned forever, 
They will come to a clarity of who Jesus is, though repentance will not be given to them, just like it was not given to Cain. But they will know who He is and they will bow down before Him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see here what the ultimate aim of everything we do is, is to bring glory to God. That's the ultimate aim of Jesus' obedience to Him, and it's summed up by Paul there. And we as humans, we run out of language to describe the superiority of the name of Jesus with what Paul gave us in those two passages. How much more can our minds comprehend? How much more can our dumb tongues confess? But in this verse, there's meaning. There's other meaning that is important for us to see. Several places in Scripture... Acts 7, Galatians 3, and Hebrews 2 describe the covenant given to Moses and the Hebrew people as that as what was delivered by the angels, put in place by the angels, declared by the angels. The covenant into which we are bought by the blood of Christ is as far better as the one put in place by the angels as his name is superior to the name of the angels. One commentator put it this way. Therefore, to show the superiority of the new covenant, which is what he cut with his blood on our account. He argues, first of all, the author of Hebrews, that Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, is better than the angels, who were the mediators of the old or Hebrew, uh, Mosaic covenant. He bases his argument on Jesus' inheritance of a better name, namely, son. The angels are not called son. The rest of chapter 1 goes into that. It is unlikely that he refers to a mere declaration that this one is the eternal son. Instead, he, he seems to refer to something that had become reality for the first time as a result of Jesus' redemptive work. He has received this name by inheritance. It answers to, Today I have begotten you. For unto which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So this commentator is saying that it's not just a comparison between Jesus and the angels. It's a comparison of the, of the covenants that they announced. There is no eternal life according to works, which is what the covenant God gave on Mount Sinai. Do these things and you will be my people. And we have the train wreck of Hebraic history showing how they did not obey, no better than we could. We have the new covenant, which is unconditional, which God says, I will call out of every tongue, tribe, nation, and people, people to myself, I will save. I will put my spirit. I will give them a new heart. I will make them a new person. I will redeem. This is the work of God in Christ. It's a better covenant, Hebrews says. In every way, the person and work of Jesus is superior to anything and everything else. The covenant of grace that He offers is better than the old covenant, which could never take away sins. Jesus alone is sufficient. He alone among all men is God. And because of that, He is worthy of our worship and our devotion and our obedience. And if we have His Spirit in us, we can be pleasing to Him as we work out obedience in the flesh. Our sin will attend everything we do, but His, His Spirit in us makes good in His sight the, work, the imperfect work that we do for Him. So as you're, doing, you're going about your business in Bible school this week, you haven't had the material long, Trust God. Point those little children to Christ in the Scriptures. Preach the Gospel to them as you bring the lesson to them. That is pleasing in the sight of God the Father. 
And so with any good sermon, there's application because there's got to be a so what. And so I want to quickly wrap up with what the application is to the saints. Sometimes in a sermon, it's the only, and I put that in quotes, uh, application is a call to honor and worship the Lord. And sometimes that's more than we can do and more than we are doing. We saw that in Psalms 95 a couple of weeks ago. That was the application. Worship God. And we need to be reminded to do that. The world and our flesh war against us and our spirit. This passage in Hebrews clearly calls us to worship God, to worship our Savior, showing us that He is worthy. So there's another application that I want you to be aware of. And yeah, this can be, this can be troublesome, so hear me. In ancient times, God spoke to His people through the prophets. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The Scriptures are the record of what He has spoken, both through the prophets and by the Son. Are we content with what He has revealed to us in the Word? Or, like the Jews of Jesus' time, do we seek after signs and updated words of knowledge and substituting man's imagination for God's Word? Many do so, and they make a shipwreck of their faith. We have a sure word from God, our Creator. We should be satisfied in what He has seen fit to give us. I I dare say none of us are going to master the entire Bible during our short time in the flesh. Why do we need to be seeking after additional wisdom that He has not given us? Now, let me clarify something here. A Christian may very reasonably claim to be led by the Spirit. If what a Christian desires to do aligns with what the Bible shows to be honorable, then the Spirit's being led by the Spirit of the, the person's being led by the Spirit of God. Had a friend years ago that was um, a quarter or a third Cherokee. He wanted to go be a missionary to the Cherokees, and he did that for several years. And he came back and he told me, God told me to go be a missionary to the Cherokees. And I asked him, really, how did that sound? Well, I didn't hear from God. Well, how do you know God spoke to you? Is it maybe not more accurate to say, you know, you've got a passion for your kinsman of the flesh like Paul had for his kinsman of the flesh? And is it not an honorable thing in God's sight for you to go preach the gospel to those people? Yeah, yeah, that's all right. So is it not more accurate to say that the Spirit of God led you to do those things? You're not putting words in His mouth, but you are acknowledging that you want to do a good thing. It must be Him doing it in you. That's being led by the Spirit. If what a man wants to do is sin, he's being led by the spirit of the age. I had a man that I served with as a deacon in church for years. He said that um, God didn't want me to be married to my wife because she was mean to him. I said, have you bled for her? No, but you just don't know what I'm living with. But Jesus does. He's, he's the one who submit. No, no, God doesn't want me to be married to her. I've heard from God. He doesn't want me to be married to her. He divorced her. He had this imaginary mythological Gnostic image that there was just one woman in all the world that he was supposed to marry, and his wife wasn't her. Well, brothers, let me tell you, when you get married, the act of marriage determines and solidifies and declares that that's the one you're supposed to marry. So Mike divorced his wife, led by the spirit of the age. Brothers and sisters, it's a lot more defensible for us who are still tainted by sin and the way we think and understand things to say that we're led by the spirit of God to do something. It's more defensible to say that than to say, God told me this. 
Because if something goes horribly wrong and brings shame to his name that God, quote, told you, are you going to blame him for that? Or are you going to take credit for it yourself? We have a sure word. It's called a closed canon. All the dreams and words that came to people in the Bible took place so that God could communicate his message to those people. We have a record of those. They've been given to us in writing. He has spoken to us by His Son. His Spirit leads us, guides us in truth, gives us understanding, and and gives us the ability to love one another and to deal with one another in understanding and compassion. But when we say, I heard a word from God, especially if I've heard a word from God about something you ought to do, we just need to not cross that line. You know? God's speaking to you in some way and you want to do something that's honorable in the sight of God, follow after God. Do that good thing. Jesus is superior to the angels. In Him all things consist. He is the Word of God. He is complete. When we say we have a Word from God that's not found in the Scriptures, we're saying that Jesus is not complete and not sufficient. When we say that His Spirit is leading us in truth and righteousness, sanctifying us so that we desire what is right and honorable in God's sight, we're saying that we are not sufficient, that we are not complete except for our our being in Christ. Because Colossians says, in Him you are complete. You you and I are not complete of ourself. In Him we live and move and have our being. In Him we are complete. Let us rest in Him In His finished work. His yoke is easy. Not like the yoke of the Pharisees, which no man could bear. He is the one that we should trust. He is the faithful witness. Let us worship Him and glorify Him in our lives. He is the victorious Lamb of God who has defeated hell and death. And He calls us to come to Him with thanksgiving. Being content. When Paul wrote that verse in Philippians, I have learned to be content with all things, he was sitting in a prison, which is a far cry from the jails we have in our country. And he said, if I have much or if I have nothing, I have learned to be content. He's not saying that God's going to give him everything. He's saying that my contentedness doesn't rest in the stuff of the world. My contentedness rests in being found in Christ. He has given us good things in this world to enjoy. Every good thing comes from the Father of life. We ought to be thankful stewards of what He's given us. As you spend time with these people this week that may not know God, and they see the car you drive, they see the stuff you have as a church, don't boast in the stuff. God's given you those things to use for His glory and for the benefit of those people. We don't know who He's going to call to Himself as you minister to these children this week. Be faithful with the message. As I told you last time I was here, remember what he says in the Word. Some water, well, first some plant. Some plant, some water. Who gives the increase? God. We have the message. We have the seed of the Gospel, that parable says. We sow the seed wide and broad because we don't know who he's going to save. Trust in God. Be faithful to Christ. By his Spirit, you and I can walk in obedience. Let's pray. Father, I do thank You for Your Word that we have, Your written Word, and I pray that we would be content to rest in You and to always be mindful of who Christ is in our lives. Lord, that we would live 
as the old theologians used to say, Coram Deo, under the face of God, all things for your glory. Let us be mindful of whose we are having been bought at such a high price. Be with us, Lord, because we need you. Keep us, Father, because we cannot keep ourselves. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.